Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America by Christian Williams. This is the second of two parts of Chapter 3, which is entitled The Genesis of a Policed Society. Urbanization and Industrialization When the modern police first appeared, eastern cities were experiencing a wave of expansion fueled by industrialization. It's no accident that industrial society produced new means of social control, since it also created new risks for disorder. Put simply, an increasingly complex society, in an increasingly complex society, there was more that could go wrong. While the sheer numbers and diversity of the population contributed to this complexity, specialization, especially in the production and distribution of goods, and increased social stratification were probably more important. These factors acted together to depress or reduce the standard of living for the greatest portion of the city's residents creating conflict between economic classes and increasing friction between ethnic and religious groups. Selden Bacon suggests, quote, These three factors of social change, the rise in specialization, the stratification of classes, and the lowering of standards and consequent limitation of activities brought about by increasing numbers, all created problems in the maintenance of a harmonious and secure society. The techniques of enforcement present in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries were unable to meet these problems. The family, the local church, the neighborhood, and the existing governmental agencies could not cope with the situation. In fact, there's a good deal of evidence to show that the changes were weakening all these institutions, especially as they helped bring about the mobility and individualism so characteristic of American society." Unquote. Cyril D. Robinson and Richard Scaglian argue among similar lines, placing the advent of modern policing in the context of the emerging capitalist system. They present four independent propositions. Quote, 1. The origin of a specialized police function depends upon the division of society into dominant and subordinate classes with antagonistic interests. Two, Specialized police agencies are generally characteristic only of societies politically organized as states. 3. In a period of transition, the crucial factor in delineating the modern specialized police function is an ongoing attempt at conversion of the social control policing mechanism from an integral part of the community structure to an agent of an emerging dominant class. And 4. The police institution is created by the emerging dominant class as an instrument for the preservation of its control over restricted access to basic resources, over the political apparatus governing this access, and over the labor force necessary to provide the surplus upon which the dominant class lives." Unquote. There's much to recommend this as a general scheme, though it seems to exaggerate the role of elite foresight and planning at the expense of after-the-fact opportunism. It does more to characterize the result than the process, assuming that the outcome corresponds with some original intention. Robinson and Scaglian's account offers a useful outline of the preconditions necessary for the creation of modern police, but the long and complex process of transition from pre-modern to modern policing suggests a more complicated picture than their theory would indicate, especially in regard to the relationship between economic elites and the state. While it is certainly true that the ruling class came to use the police as an instrument for the expansion and preservation of their power, it seems like a stretch to say that they created the institution for that end. As we have seen, the first significant advances toward modern police appeared in the South, 
where the elite attitudes about the state were characteristically ambivalent. The maintenance of slave laws originally relied upon informal universal enforcement requirements reminiscent of the Frank Pledge. Every white member of the community had the responsibility to uphold the law. The southern system of slave control underwent a full transition from this informal policing system through various stages of specialization to its apex in the creation of the quite modern Charleston police force. Clearly this transformation relied on social stratification, the existence of a political state, and the use of the policing function to maintain the racial and economic status quo, that is, to protect the interests of the slave owners. However, while police powers were intentionally divorced from the community and invested in a specialized group, this change was not, as Robinson and Scaglian's model might imply, instigated at the behest of the slave owners, but to some degree accomplished over their objections and despite their resistance. It was instead political elites who created slave patrols as a guard against the political threat of revolt, more than against the economic dangers of escape. While the state functioned in the interests of the ruling class, it was not yet an agent of the ruling class, but a competing nexus of power, and a challenge to the aristocratic pretensions of the slave owners. In cities, industrialization and its accompanying entourage of social changes led to the breakdown of the informal means of social control that had proved mostly sufficient to that point. Cities thus produced advantage, advances in social control that the plantation system hadn't needed and likely would have eschewed. In southern cities, like Charleston, the city guards picked up where the patrols had fallen short, in the control of slaves and free black people on hire. In northern cities, industrialization produced similar needs to control the workforce. Rather than rely on personal authority and social deference, as on the plantation, or on the influence of the family and church, as in smaller New England towns, industrial cities of the north created governmental systems that were universalistic and routinized. Faced with similar challenges relating to urbanization, industrialization, and the rise of capitalism, elites in different cities responded in markedly similar ways, sometimes consciously borrowing from each other, and sometimes unwittingly reproducing models and techniques that were in use elsewhere, keeping what succeeded and discarding that which failed to suit their purposes. And, as this process advanced, they transformed the mechanisms of law enforcement and created a new distinctive institution. The New York Municipal Police came to define the type, but it would be wrong to think of the New York Police as simply a modern watch, or as a northern slave patrol, or as a set of American bobbies, though it was somewhat analogous to all three. In New York, as elsewhere, the police appeared when broad social trends intersected with local crises and the particular needs of the city. Of course, the authorities only responded to the crises on a rather shallow level, never acknowledging the underlying causes that produced them. Instead, local elites preferred to blame the crisis of urbanization on the moral shortcomings of the poor, and the idea of the dangerous classes was born. Quote, in the years preceding the rise of police departments in London and in the United States, middle class and elite members of society attributed crime, riot, and public drunkenness to the members of the dangerous classes. The image was that of a convulsively and possibly biologically criminal, riotous, and intemperate group of persons located at the base of society. Their actions were seen as destroying the very fabric of society." Unquote. 
The particular population identified with the dangerous classes varied by locale. In England, the dangerous classes consisted of the urban poor, vagrants, and prostitutes in particular. In the northern United States, it was the immigrant lower class. In Boston, the term was especially applied to Irish Catholics. The term was not much used in the South, but the dangerous classes found an analogy in the black population, and especially the slaves. In addition to their association with crime and disorder, the dangerous classes also represented an alien presence, a group with different values whose behavior was therefore suspicious, as if by definition. The Boston Council reported, quote, In former times, the night watch with a small constabulary force were quite sufficient to keep the peace in a city proverbial for its love of order and attachment to the laws, and remarkable for the homogeneous character of its population. But the rapid development of the system of railroads and the means of communication with all parts of Europe, together with other causes, have brought among us great numbers who have not had the benefit of a New England training, and who have heretofore been held in restraint rather by fear of the lawgiver than respect for the law." Unquote. Moreover, criminal behavior was understood as a threat to the social order, not merely to its real or potential victims. Theft obviously challenged the sanctity of private property, but more to the point, drunkenness and vagrancy seemed to threaten the standards of diligence and self-control central to the Protestant morality, and crucial to an economic system dependent on regularity, predictability, and a disciplined workforce. Crime and criminality were thus constructed to reflect the ideological needs of elites. Criminality was less a matter of what people did than of what they represented. The idea of dangerous classes was intimately tied to the prevailing economic order in each place, and had profound implications for the systems of social control they adopted. Quote, Slavery was not primarily a penal institution, though that was one of its results. In addition to its role in the southern labor and social system, the plantation kept under confinement and control the one class that was most threatening to the social order. Similarly, the prison was not primarily a labor system, but it mandated labor for rehabilitation, profit, and internal order. order. The prison adopted many features of the factory system and justified forced labor of convicts because of the moral uplift it provided. Unquote. Both systems supplied large-scale unpaid labor for the propertied classes, deprived the workers of their most basic civil liberties and political rights and relied on corporal punishment and shaming for discipline. Furthermore, in both cases, the economic systems created the class of people they were then at such pains to control, the slaves in the plantation system and the immigrant working class in industrialized cities. While elite anxieties about the dangerous classes supplied the impetus for new forms of social control, other concerns also helped to shape the emerging institutions. The modern police system, unlike less formal means of control, actually required very little of ordinary citizens in the way of enforcement, and exposed the respectable classes to almost no personal danger. And, though supplying an organized force under control of the government, it avoided the unseemly image of a military occupation, since police, in the North at least, patrolled alone or in pairs, and were sparingly armed. Furthermore, an impersonal system was to be preferred over either a military model or a more informal arrangement because, ironically, it was less obviously a tool of the ruling classes. 
To the degree that industrialization and urbanization created changes related to the diversity of the urban population, economic specialization, and social stratification, they certainly produced new challenges of social control. But the question remains, what did those difficulties have to do with crime? Put differently, it might be asked, were the dangerous classes criminal, or were they criminalized? The demand for order. It is generally assumed that the police were created to deal with rising levels of crime caused by urbanization and the increasing numbers of immigrants. John Schneider describes the typical accounts. Quote, the first studies were legal and administrative in their focus, confined mostly to narrative descriptions of the step-by-step -step demise of the old constabulary and the steady but often controversial evolution of the professionals. Scholars seemed preoccupied with the politics of police reform. Its causes, on the other hand, were considered only in cursory fashion, more often assumed than proved. Cities, it would seem, moved inevitably toward modern policing as a consequence of soaring levels of crime and disorder in an era of phenomenal growth and profound social change." Unquote. I will refer to this as the crime and disorder theory. Despite its initial plausibility, the idea that the police were invented in response to an epidemic of crime is, to be blunt, exactly wrong. Furthermore, it is not much of an explanation. It assumes that, quote, when crime reaches a certain level, the natural social response is to create a uniformed police force. This, of course, is not an explanation, but an assertion of a natural law, for which there is little evidence, unquote. It may be that slave revolts, riots, and other instances of collective violence precipitated the creation of modern police, but we should remember that neither crime nor disorder were unique to 19th century cities, and therefore cannot on their own account for a change such as the rise of a new institution. Riotous mobs controlled much of London during the summer of 1780, but the Metropolitan Police did not appear until 1829. Public drunkenness was a serious problem in Boston as early as 1775, but a modern police force was not created there until 1838. So the crime and disorder theory fails to explain why earlier crime waves didn't produce modern police. It also fails to explain why crime in the 19th century led to policing and not to some other arrangement. Furthermore, it is not at all clear that crime was on the rise prior to the creation of the modern police. In Boston, for example, crime went down between 1820 and 1830 and continued to drop for the rest of the 19th century. In fact, crime was such a minor concern that it was not even mentioned in the Marshall's Report of 1824. And the city suffered only a single murder between 1822 and 1834. Whether or not crime was on the rise, after the introduction of modern policing, the number of arrests increased. The majority of these arrests were for misdemeanors, and most were related to victimless crimes, or crimes against the public order. They did not generally involve violence or the loss of property, but instead concerned public drunkenness, vagrancy, loitering, disorderly conduct, or being a suspicious person. In other words, the great portion of the actual business of law enforcement did not concern the protection of life and property, but the controlling of poor people, their habits, and their manners. The suppression of such disorderly conduct was only made possible by the introduction of modern police. For the first time, more arrests were made on the initiative of the officer than in response to specific complaints. Though the charges were generally minor, the implications were not. The charge from privately initiated to police-initiated prosecutions greatly shifted the balance of power between the citizenry and the state. A critic of this view might suggest that the rise in public order 
arrests reflected an increase in public order offenses rather than a shift in official priorities. Unfortunately, there's no way to verify this claim. The increase in arrests does not provide very good evidence since it is precisely this increase the hypothesis seeks to explain. However, if the tolerance for disorder was in decline, this fact, coupled with the existence of the new police, would be sufficient to explain the increase in arrests of this type. The Cleveland police offered a limited test of this hypothesis. In December 1907, they adopted a golden rule policy. Rather than arrest drunks and other public order offenses, offenders, the police walked them home or issued a warning. In the year before the policy was established, Cleveland police made 30,418 arrests, only 938 of which were for felonies. In the year after the Golden Rule was instituted, the police made 10,095 arrests, 1,000 of which were for felonies. Other cities implemented similar policies, in some cases reducing the number of arrests by 75%. Cleveland's example demonstrates that official tolerance can reduce arrest rates, this suggests an explanation for the sudden rise in misdemeanor arrests during the previous century. If official tolerance can reduce arrest rates, it makes sense that official intolerance could increase the number of arrests. In other words, during the 19th century, crime was down, but the demand for order was up, at least among those people who could influence the administration of the law. New York City's campaign against prostitution certainly followed this pattern. During the first half of the 19th century, the official view on prostitution transformed from one of complacency to one of moral panic. Beginning in the 1830s, when reform societies took an interest in the issue, it was widely claimed that prostitution was approaching epidemic proportions. Probably the number of prostitutes did increase. The Watch estimated that there were 600 prostitutes working in 1806 and 1,200 in 1818. In 1856, police chief George Matsell set the figure at 5,000. But given that the population of the city increased by more than six times between 1820 and 1860, the official estimates actually showed a decrease in the number of prostitutes relative to the population. Enforcement activities, however, increased markedly during the same period. In 1860, 90 people were committed to the first district prison for keeping a disorderly house. This figure was five times that of 1849, when 17 people were imprisoned for the offense. Likewise, prison sentences for vagrancy arose from 3,173 for the entire period covering 1820 to 1830 to 3,552 in 1850 and 6,552 in 1860. As prostitutes were generally cited for vagrancy, since prostitution itself was not a statutory offense, the proportion of female vagrants steadily rose. Women comprised 62% of those imprisoned for vagrancy in 1850 and 72% in 1860. This analysis does not solve the problem, but merely relocates it. If it was not crime, but the standards of order that were rising, what caused the higher standards of public order? For one thing, the relative absence of serious crime may have facilitated the rise in social standards and the demand for order. Quote, a fall in the real crime rate allows officially accepted standards of conduct to rise. As the standards rise, the penal machinery is extended and refined. The result is that an increase in the total number of cases brought in accompanies a decrease in their relative severity." Unquote. Once established, the police themselves may have helped to raise expectations. In New York, Chief Matsell actively promoted the panic, 
over public disorder, in part to quiet criticism of the new police. More subtly, the very existence of the police may have suggested the possibility of urban peace, and made it seem feasible that most laws would be enforced, not indirectly by the citizenry, but directly by the state. And the new emphasis on public order corresponded with the morality of the dominant Protestant class and the demands of the new industrialized economy, ensuring elite support for policing. This intersection of class bias and rigid moralism was particularly clear concerning and had special implications for the status of women. In many ways, the sudden fervor of a prostitution was typical. As the social mores of the Protestant ruling class came to define legal notions of public order and vice, the role of women was redefined and increasingly restricted. Quote, Fond paternalistic indulgence of women who conformed to domestic ideals was intimately connected with extreme condemnation of those who were outside the bounds of patronage and dependence on which the relations of men and women were based. Unquote. As a result, women were held to higher standards and subject to harsher treatment when they stepped outside the bounds of their role. Women were arrested less frequently than men, but were more likely to be jailed and served longer sentences than men convicted of the same crimes. Enforcement practices surrounding the demand for order thus weighed doubly on working-class women, who faced gender-based as well as class-based restrictions on their public behavior. At the same time, the increased demand for order came to shape not only the enforcement of the law, but the law itself. In the early 19th century, Boston's laws only prohibited habitual drunkenness, but in 1835, public drunkenness was also banned. Alcohol-related arrests increased from a few hundred each year to several thousand. In 1878, police powers were extended even further as they were authorized to arrest people for loitering or using profanity. In Philadelphia, meanwhile, quote, after the new police law took effect, the doctrine of arrest on suspicion was tacitly extended to the arrest and surveillance of people in advance of a crime, unquote. Police scrutiny of the dangerous classes was at least partly an outgrowth of the preventive orientation of the new police. Built into the idea that the cops could prevent crime is the notion that they can predict criminal behavior. This preventive focus shifted their attention from actual po to potential crimes, and then from the crime to the criminal, and finally to the potential criminal. Profiling became an inherent element of modern policing. So, contrary to the crime and disorder explanation, the new police system was not created in response to escalating crime rates, but developed as a means of social control by which an emerging dominant class could impose their values on the larger population. This shift can only be understood against a backdrop of much broader social changes. Industrialization and urbanization produced a new class of workers and, with it, new challenges for social control. They also produced opportunities for social control at a level previously unknown. The police represented one aspect of this growing apparatus, as did the prison and some time later the public school. Furthermore, the police, by forming a major source of power for emerging city governments and for those who would control them, also contributed to the development of other bureaucracies and increased the possibilities for rational administration. The reasons for these developments have been made fairly clear, but the means by which the police idea evolved and spread deserves further explication. Imitation, Experimentation, Evolution Studies of police history that focus on the experience of a particular city often inadvertently imply that the police in New York, for example, or Philadelphia or Boston, developed independently based on the unique needs and specific circumstances of that city. 
This perspective obscures a very important aspect of police development, namely the degree to which city administrators consciously watched the innovations of other cities, drawing from them as suited their needs. This system of communication and imitation explains the sudden appearance of very similar police organizations in cities all across the country in a relatively short period of time. For though it took a very long time for the characteristics of modern policing to develop, once they crystallized into a coherent form, the idea spread very quickly. Of course, the practice of borrowing police models from elsewhere was not itself new. American cities borrowed their earliest law enforcement mechanisms from European cities, especially London and Paris. Georgia modeled its slave patrols on those already established in South Carolina, which were themselves copied from similar systems in Barbados. Later, it became common for towns to copy the patrolling techniques of others nearby. Thus, it is not especially surprising that New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Baltimore, and Washington, D.C. all took inspiration from the Metropolitan Police of London. But the English influence on American policing should not be overstated. Imitation occurred, but it was not total. Instead, quote, America's borrowing from England was selective. The general form of innovation came from England, although Americans modified and transformed English patterns to fit their particular culture, unquote. Hence, the two countries prescribed very different relationships between the officers and the communities they patrolled. In England, the bobbies were recruited from the countryside and from the lower ranks of the army. They were housed in barracks, denied the vote, and made accountable to Parliament, rather than to the local authorities. In the United States, the police were expected to be a part of the communities they served. They were to act not only as police, but as citizens and neighbors as well. A more telling difference lay in the extent and nature of local political influence in policing. In America, quote, political parties contested vigorously to control police patronage and power, which precluded American departments from following exactly their supposed model, the London Metropolitan Police, unquote. American cities also looked to each other for ideas. When Boston resolved, quote, to imitate as far as may be the system of London, unquote, it also mentioned the reforms of New York and Philadelphia and noted that Baltimore, Brooklyn, and other cities were moving in the same direction. And in 1843, the Legislative Committee investigating better means of policing riots in Philadelphia spent two months collecting ideas from other cities. While less well-documented, innovations originating in particular districts or in the countryside came to be incorporated into the practices of city police. This certainly occurred in Charleston, where the police had a direct lineage from the slave patrols. A similar process took place in London, where the use of full-time officers, the system of beat patrols, the focus on crime prevention, and even a bureaucratic structure were all developed in the parishes under the watch system, and then consolidated in 1829. If the practice of imitation shows how cities came to create police departments that closely resembled one another's, the process of experimentation helps to explain why they settled on the particular model they did. Because each city adjusted its organization in a number of ways, either in response to local pressures or based on innovations of its own, variations emerged that could then be tested by experience. Those judged to be successful were retained, and those that failed were abandoned. A kind of natural selection took place. Only the ideas deemed successful in one city survived to be reproduced elsewhere. In principle, this process could result in a diversity of policing mechanisms, and at times has done so. Witness the contrast between 17th century plantation system and that of New York during the same period. But as cities faced similar pressures related to population growth, industrialization, increased stratification, and the like, they came to adopt shared measures of success. 
As a result, older models, which had survived in some places for a very long time, were suddenly outmoded and replaced. As Bacon outlines it, when social changes caused the traditional means of control to fail, variations of enforcement were adopted. Generally, these were aimed at particular populations, slaves, the poor, immigrants, or trouble spots, ghettos, plantations, saloons, etc. Specialists in enforcement arose and then unified into general enforcement bodies. The move from informal systems of racial dominance to slave patrol to police may be understood as following this pattern. In New York, policing developed along similar lines. The watch was expanded, the constable's duties extended, the marshal's office created, and eventually a modern police force replaced them all. The new agencies drew heavily from their predecessors in matters related to organizational structure, methods, and purpose. By incorporating the best of the recent innovations, the new types out-competed the disparate organizations they first imitated and then replaced. But it would be wrong to think of such changes as only ever representing real progress. In fact, the nature of experimentation practically guarantees otherwise. Innumerable innovations were introduced only to be abandoned a short time later. Reforms were implemented and quickly reversed. It would be tedious to trace out every dead branch on this family tree, but to only consider the successes would run the risk of distorting the picture of development, presenting a circuitous route as a straightaway for the sake of preserving the neatness of our map. To make the point briefly, I will borrow Bacon's taxonomy of the failed types. Quote, Some of the variations in enforcement brought about by the failure of the primary groups, particularly the failure of the family to maintain order and security, may be noted. The use of religious officers, such as the tithing man and warden, the use of the military, the attempt to secure order by having legislators and justices act as police, the trial of policing by posse, by citizen watch, by informer, the practice of employing special men paid by fee, the experiments with private police and substitutes. For the most part, these all failed." Unquote. Experimentation moved cities from one type of law enforcement to the next, but we should not exaggerate the empiricist nature of the process. Far from following a carefully controlled program and employing the scientific method, progress occurred on an improvisational basis in response to short-term political considerations. Many adaptations were accepted or abandoned, not on their practical merits, but for strictly partisan reasons. Quote, Americans have rarely if ever agreed on the proper scope and function of the police, and such conflicts have molded police performance in a variety of ways. Most police administrators have responded to whichever group was making the most noise at the moment, rather than following a consistent and thought-out line of policy." Unquote. These political conflicts helped to shape the institution, just as the practice of imitation and the process of constant revision did. But behind it all is the simple fact that institutions, like organism species, must adapt to their environment or die. Policing, as an institution, did a great deal better than just survive. As it adapted to the social conditions of the early and mid-19th century, it became not only the product, but also the producer of social change. The Policed Society As policing changed, it grew in importance, and in turn changed the society that had created it. The development of modern police facilitated further industrialization. It consolidated the influence of political machines. It led to the creation of new bureaucracies and advances in municipal government and it made possible the imposition of Protestant moral values on the urban population. Also, and more basically, 
it allowed the state to impose on the lives of individuals in an unprecedented manner. Sovereignty, and even states, are older than the police. Quote, European kingdoms in the Middle Ages became law states before they became police states, unquote, meaning that they made laws and adjudicated claims before they established an independent mechanism for enforcing them. Organized police forces only emerged when traditional informal or community-maintained means of social control broke down. This breakdown was in each case prompted by a larger social change, often a change that some part of the community resisted with violence, such as the creation of a national state, colonization, or the enslavement of a subject people. It is at the point where authority is met with resistance that the organized application of force becomes necessary. Each development detailed here has conformed to this general pattern, the creation of the offices of the sheriff and the constable, the establishment of the watch, the deployment of slave patrols, the transition to city guards, and finally, the rise of the modern police. The aims and means of social control always approximately reflect the anxieties of elites. In times of crisis or pronounced social change, as the concerns of elites shift, the mechanisms of social control are adapted accordingly. In the South, the institution of slave patrol has developed in stages following real or rumored insurrections. Later, complex factors conspired to produce the modern police force. Industrialization changed the system of social stratification and added a new threat, or set of threats, subsumed under the title of the dangerous classes. Moreover, while serious crime was on the decline, the demand for order was on the rise owing to the needs of the new economic regime and the Protestant morality that supported it. In response to these conditions, American cities created a distinctive brand of police. They borrowed heavily from the English model already in place, but also took ideas from the existing night watch, the office of the constable, the militia, and the slave patrols. At the same time, the drift toward modern policing fit nicely with the larger movement toward modern municipal government, best understood in terms of the emerging political machines and later tied to the rise of bureaucracies. The extensive interrelation between these various factors, industrialization, increasing demands for order, the fear of the dangerous classes, pre-existing models of policing, and the development of citywide political machines, makes it obvious that no single item can be identified as the sole cause for the move toward policing. History is not propelled by a single engine, though historical accounts often are. Scholars have generally relied on one or one set of these factors in crafting their explanations, with most emphasizing those surrounding the sudden and rapid expansion of the urban population, especially immigrant communities. Urbanization certainly had a role, but not the role it is usually assumed to have had. Rather than producing widespread criminality, cities actually produced widespread civility. As the population rose, the rate of serious crimes dropped. The crisis of the time was not one of law, but of order, specifically the order required by the new industrial economy, and the Protestant moralism that supplied, in large part, its ideological expression. The police provided a mechanism by which the power of the state, and eventually that of the emerging ruling class, could be brought to bear on the lives and habits of individual members of society. Quote, the new organization of police made it possible for the first time in generations to attempt a wide enforcement of the criminal code, especially the vice laws. But while the earlier lack of execution was largely the result of weakness, it had served a useful function also as part of the system of compromise, which made the law tolerable. 
In other words, the much decried inefficiency and inadequacy of the night watch in fact corresponded with the practical limitations of the, on the power of the state. With these limits removed or overcome, the state at once cast itself in a more active role. Public safety was no longer in the hands of amateur night watchmen, but had been transferred to a full-time professional body directed by and accountable to the city authorities. The enforcement of the law no longer relied on the complaints of aggrieved citizens, but on the initiative of officers whose mission was to prevent offenses. Hence, crimes without victims needn't be ignored, and potential offenders needn't be given the opportunity to act. In both instances, the new police were doing what would have been nearly inconceivable just a few years before. It was in this way that the United States became what Alan Silver calls a policed society. Quote, a policed society is unique in that central power exercises potentially violent supervision over the population by bureaucratic means widely diffused throughout civil society in small and discretionary operations that are capable of rapid concentration. Unquote. The police organization allowed the state to establish a constant presence in a wide geographic area and exercise routinized control by the use of patrols and other surveillance. Through the same organization, the state retained the ability to concentrate its power in the event of a riot or other emergency without having to resort to the use of troops or the maintenance of a military presence. Silver argues that the significance of this advance, quote, lay not only in its narrow application to crime and violence, in a broader sense, it represented the penetration and continual presence of central political authority throughout daily life. Unquote. The populace as a whole, even if not every individual person, was to be put under constant surveillance. The police represent the point of contact between the coercive apparatus of the state and the lives of its citizens. Put this way, the characteristics of modern policing may come to sound more ominous. The specialized function, the concentration of power in a centralized organization, the constant application of that power over the entire city, the separation of the police from the community, and a preventive aim. While in some ways a more rational application of traditional means, the organizations that developed in this direction were fundamentally different from the ones they replaced. With the birth of modern policing, the state acquired a new means of controlling the citizenry, one based on its experiences, not only with crime and domestic disorder, but with colonialism and slavery as well. If policing was not in its inception a totalitarian pursuit, the modern development of the institution has at least been a major step in that direction. That's the end of chapter 3. The next chapter is called Cops and Clan Hand in Hand.